0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology.
1: It's a common condition. It can lurk within our young athletes and tragically, the first clue to its presence can be sudden cardiac arrest. How are we improving our techniques and strategies for preventing, identifying, and treating hypertrophic cardiomyopathy before it leads to tragedy? Our guest this morning is Dr. Ted Abraham, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Abraham leads a team of cardiologists and other professionals at the Johns Hopkins Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Abraham.
0: Thank you, Janet. Glad to be here.
1: In my 25 years or so of practice, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has had a number of names. Maybe you could take us through those names and how the thought has evolved over time about the condition.
0: Sure. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the current terminology for a relatively common condition. It is thought to occur in about 1 in 500 people, definitely in the Western world and some studies even in Asia, It used to be called asymmetric septal hypertrophy, which was more of a morphologic diagnosis. That is, the commonest way this condition presents is with a difference in septal wall versus posterior wall thickness in the heart. So the two walls of the heart have different thickness, and that was how it was initially addressed. And then for the longest time, it was called IHSS, or idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis. And then with more knowledge and more investigation being generated on this condition, it is currently called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Also, a recent addition to our knowledge of this condition is the fact that it is mostly a genetic disorder and it is often familial.
1: I would guess that part of the reason we've learned so much about this condition is the advent of echocardiography.
0: Absolutely. So prior to echocardiography, angiography was a common way of diagnosis. So on angiography, you could see the very hypertrophied or thickened septum, and often the opposing wall constricting the dye as it entered the ventricle. So that was how it was initially diagnosed. But very often, if there was no significant hypertrophy, it could have been missed with angiography. With the advent of echocardiography approximately 50 years ago, and the ability to look at the heart non-invasively repeated numbers of times, we were able to capture a lot more of this condition.
1: And perhaps you could, I guess I'm looking for clues as to why there has been an evolution in thought about this disease. We've been able to image it increasingly accurately, but the physical exam, maybe you could spend a minute or two on the physical exam in patients. And I realize, as do our listeners, that this disease is a spectrum Absolutely.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that it is a spectrum. Uh, Indeed, it could vary from a very normal-looking heart with absolutely no physical signs or symptoms to a very advanced form where there's overt heart failure and all the signs and symptoms of decompensated heart failure. The commonest physical exam sign is a systolic murmur, usually heard along the sternal border. Because of its location and the fact that it's a systolic murmur, it is often confused for a physiologic or a functional murmur. I see approximately one to two patients a day, every single day of the week, with this condition, and I would say that in about 70% of them, they've been diagnosed with a murmur as a child or as a young adult, and they've been told that this is a benign murmur. The other physical signs are primarily if they go into heart failure. Without that, for most part, the primary physical sign would be the systolic murmur. Now, there are some characteristics of that murmur that are important to note. One is it's extremely harsh. It could be conducted up to both carotids. It is mostly located on either side of the sternum. It gets worse or intensifies with expiration or after a valsalva maneuver. That's because the dynamic obstruction gets worse. Another common physical maneuver that would help detect or diagnose hypertrophic cardiomyopathy versus other conditions would be a squat and stand maneuver. So you have the patient squat all the way down for several seconds and then have them stand up. And that hemodynamic maneuver also often results in an increase in the intensity of the murmur. If they're in heart failure, you could get a third heart sound. Often you might hear a second apical murmur, which is related to the presence of mitral regurgitation with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If they're overtly in heart failure, again, you might get edema of the feet, uh, elevated jugular venous pressure. The crackles in the lungs are almost never heard unless they're truly in decompensated left heart failure.
1: Very helpful advice about the physical exam, especially those maneuvers. But I've committed a cardinal error. I didn't ask you about the history that you would take in the patients that you see. Perhaps you could give us the key points that raise your eyebrows about the presence of this condition.
0: Absolutely. As I said, it could be anywhere from a completely asymptomatic condition to something that's very symptomatic. Now, I often see young people who are very, very asymptomatic have been sent to me because they initially had a murmur and underwent an echocardiogram. Now, I have to say that maybe in 40% of the patients I see, they have been discovered incidentally. They happen to go to their primary physician for a routine physical, and they are found to have a heart murmur, and the primary physician oftentimes has followed that murmur for many years and then decides that they would just really like to get an echocardiogram. and the echocardiogram shows overt or very pronounced signs or findings consistent with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. On their history, I essentially asked them if they ever had a murmur in their life, especially if they were born with a heart murmur or had a heart murmur in early childhood. The other thing I often ask them is how did they did with sports in their high school and school years. If they were not able to keep up with their peers, that gives me, I guess, an inkling that there might have been some issue with exercise capacity even during their young adulthood. Next, I ask them if they've ever passed out, especially during exercise or if they've had shortness of breath with exercise, shortness of breath that has been gradually progressive in intensity would also be a clue to some cardiac abnormality. Lastly, I would say the issue of chest pain. Very often, if they have significant hypertrophy, they also tend to have significant chest pain. Again, chest pain and shortness of breath are two symptoms that seem to get worse with time and with increasing levels of hypertrophy. So if someone tells me that they had Chest pain walking a mile, and now they get it walking up a flight of stairs or walking two blocks, then that heightens my suspicion and also makes me look at their echocardiogram in a more thorough fashion to make sure they don't have something like a HCM.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright. Our guest today is Dr. Ted Abraham, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. We're discussing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Ted, we were reviewing the clues that are in the history, patient's history, that could tip you off to the presence of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What about family history?
0: Family history is very critical, and I'm glad you touched upon that. After I take their current history, I always ask them if anybody in their family had actually carried a diagnosis of either IHSS or HCM. And I'd say in about half my patients, they do give a history of HCM. Very often, it's the unfortunate history of a sibling or a parent having actually died of HCM. So family history is very important. Now, if they do not give me a direct history of HCM, I asked them if anybody in their family died of heart disease or ever complained of chest pain, if they were ever diagnosed with a myocardial infarction, or if they died suddenly that or unsuspected. Very often we get young adults who are sitting at the breakfast table or, or at work and who just collapse and have a sudden cardiac arrest or a sudden death episode. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy often presents with sudden cardiac death. In fact, in folks less than 30 years of age, the commonest cause of sudden cardiac death is HCM.
1: Are there genetic counseling approaches now that are recommended for affected families?
0: Absolutely. In our clinic, which consists of a significant component of which is actually the genetic component. We have geneticists, medical geneticists, and genetic counselors. We encourage every patient to undergo genotyping. President Bush signed into law the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, which prevents insurance companies and employers from using genetic information to uh, discriminate against patients. So that opened up... uh, A new avenue for genetic testing. Prior to that, the insurance could have used your genetic information to adversely influence your premiums or even your coverage. We are now free, or the patients rather have the freedom to get their genetic testing. So we offer genetic testing in the patient and all their first degree relatives. It remains an expensive test. So for most part, it would be best if the insurance could cover that test and many insurances do cover this test. It costs about three to four thousand dollars. Now, the genotyping test covers a few genes. We don't obviously know all the genes out there that cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but the ones that are known, it covers about 60% of them. So we need to take the genotypic information with a grain of salt. If it's positive, it's great, but if it's negative, it does not mean you don't have the disease because we might just not be looking for the gene that you have in that particular case. So genotyping is followed in our clinic by genetic counseling. We have a certified genetic counselor who will spend about an hour with each patient and their families and draw up a family tree and go over in late terms what this condition means to the patient, to their family, to their children, and their grandchildren, because obviously this is passed on in a dominant fashion. Lastly, I'd like to say that genetics is one piece of the pie. It doesn't give you the whole story, because you could be genetically negative, but you could have an echocardiographic or an MRI picture that's very classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So for treatment purposes, it's really the phenotype, the picture that we see on the echocardiogram that makes the difference. The genotype is good information. It's good to test in their children. And in some genotypes, it is good to know because they're the so-called malignant genotypes. For example, the troponin mutations are known not to cause too much hypertrophy, but be associated with very high rates of sudden cardiac death. So as far as treatment strategies go, genotyping occupies, I'd say, a slightly minor role compared to the actual phenotype in a particular patient.
1: That's a relief actually to hear because of the resource issue, the expense of genetic testing. And I guess it's comforting in a way to know that our physical exam and even limited imaging like echocardiogram can help guide decision making.
0: That is correct. Of course, they're thinking that with the Human Genome Project that we will be able to look at many more, and I'm sure with every year we will be able to identify more genes. However, the way the medical condition and the course of the condition evolves, we know that genotyping will probably continue to play a modest or minor role rather than a predominant role in determining the optimal therapy for the patient.
1: Your advice at this point to someone with at least phenotypically mild HCM, in terms of their physical activity.
0: Again, a great question. If they do not have too much hypertrophy and they don't have any outflow obstruction, that is no dynamic gradients uh, in their left ventricular outflow tract. What I advise them is to continue mild to moderate intensity activity. Every patient that has a confirmed diagnosis of HCM is advised not to participate in any competitive sports, especially high-intensity sports like, say, basketball or football, and to avoid any high-intensity training or strenuous training. I realized that I get this question very often which is what is mild to moderate intensity and uh, it obviously differs from patient to patient. If someone really is not used to too much physical activity, maybe walking on the treadmill for about 30 minutes is moderate intensity or a moderate uh, level of intensity for them. While there might be other and I've seen some star athletes for example who running a four-mile run every day is only mild or moderate. So it does vary from patient to patient and also varies depending on their current level of exertion or exercise. I'm not sure about the training for competitive sports issue. For most part, the current recommendation has been not to indulge in that just because there have been the highly publicized deaths of sports personalities during a game or right after a game. As we learn more about the physiology of the condition and the cardiac mechanics that's involved, maybe we'll be able to nuance those recommendations based on an individual patient. But right now, it's really a blanket recommendation of not to indulge in any competitive training. Obviously, if they're going to be on the the college chess team, that's allowed. (laughs)
1: The aerobic chest team. That's right. We've been learning more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with Dr. Ted Abraham. Dr. Abraham, thank you for being our guest today.
0: Thank you. My pleasure, Janet, and thank you for having me on your show. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.